My name's Julie Reeves and I'm from the University of Southampton and I'm also one of the co-conveners of the Postgraduate Issues Network along with my colleague Professor Pam Nicolo and um, Dr Richard Race who's at the back and um, Martin Goff who unfortunately can't be with us today. So we've put this um, seminar together. So we're looking at this afternoon, this is a kind of experiment in the way of um, seminars, um, transferable skills and realising potential through translation to other contexts. And this is the woolly kind of, the idea of transfer, transferability, transferable skills. All of that has kind of grown in, um, you know, become a really prominent issue in the last decade or so. And, but also, one that's been largely assumed, there are lots of assumptions about what we think about transferable skills and transfer. Um, and so what we want to do is try to start to unpick some of this and what it means for different contexts and also different kinds of postgraduate as well. So the concept or notion of transfer and transferable skills is implicit in a lot of higher education activity, most notably around employability um, of our graduates and postgraduates, and some of you may be involved in those agendas, um, and also around the kind of activity where we're required to collaborate more closely with industry or work more um, closely with industry. Um, so in order for us to do that, we need to kind of speak the same language. And then in the public engagement agenda, for ideas to transfer into the public arena, um, we need to kind of perhaps turn them into something else um, so that we can transfer our ideas out. More explicitly, um, transferable skills, the notion of transferable skills, was came about in the UK through the Roberts agenda and, um, and then PGR transferable skills agenda and that's where um, Pam and I have done a lot of our work which we'll tell you a little bit about in a moment. Um, and then also more recently around um, the DTCs and the CDTs, the doctoral training centres and the newer kind of professional doctorates where people are coming into the academy from different professional and um, working um, experiences. So there's a whole kind of package of questions there about what challenges do these newer forms of doctorate and these other kinds of expectations, what are they placing on our um, postgraduates and on us as the developers and the careers advisors and the staff that support all of those. So the notion of um, transfer and transferability and transfer of skills lurks behind a lot of higher education activity and a lot of it we think is assumed to be quite straightforward that once you have a skill you can transfer out or you can transfer between things and that's the reason why we've kind of come together um, this afternoon. So and this afternoon we've got three different perspectives on this. Um, first of all Pam and I will talk about um, transferable skills and the transferable skills story and this is from a paper that we've just um, rewritten and resubmitted for publication. And then um, Fumi, Dr Fumi Kitagawa is here, is the lecturer from, in entrepreneurship and innovation at the University of Edinburgh and Fumi's been looking at um, the impact of industry-based doctorate training, um, the NGD, and people transferring into the academy and that link between industry and the academy and has been researching on an EPSRC funded project. And then um, Dr Stephen Webster, who is um, a Senior Lecturer and Director of the Science Communication Unit at Imperial College and leads what I think is actually a unique Master's, MSc in um, 
science communication. We're uh, equipping science graduates to go out it with um, into communications type roles. So this is so we've got three different kinds of perspectives. And the order, the way we're going to run things, is that Pam and I will kind of be a, a bit of a warm-up act. And we'll, we'll kind of set the scene and give you some of the things that we've been doing. Um, and then we'll listen to Fumi and um, Stephen's presentations. And Fumi will take some questions and Stephen will take questions. And then we'll, if we've got any time, we'll take some general questions. And then we'll have a break for tea and then we'll come back and we'll have some discussion, group discussion about what your experiences are and the lessons that we've learned from all of this. So that's the plan. That's the plan. Okay, we roll. We roll. Let's hit it. So, okay. I'm going to just say that uh, it's quite entertaining for me to the notion of uh, there actually being a chair in entrepreneurship in the university. Uh, because those of the same generation as I, there are many of them still around, but fading fast, um, who would never have dreamt of coming down from uh, their ivory tower or equipped with an elevator pitch to engage in entrepreneurship. It's all, uh, it's all quite new for some people. Um, and um, things change slowly in universities. And I think what we need to do is consider where we are making assumptions about uh, what people understand by some of these uh, innovations that we're engaged with, fun though they are. Now let me see what happens. Which place again? Yes. yes, right. Right, a brief history of our time. Um, we thought we'd just just uh, summarise why we're here. And um, we were basically, Julie and I, conned into doing the major amount of, of um, footwork, let's say, the mm -hmm. research for the RDF and worked on putting it together. So have you got a picture So we set about writing a book on it. Ta-da! This is our unashamed <laughs> right? Um, and we, um, in doing that, it made us think more and more what do we mean by transferability. And we came to the conclusion towards the end of the book, really, that um, what we meant, uh, what we were trying to get to, was the notion of helping our students to translate skills into different environments. They might learn the skill, and it might, on the surface, have potential for transferability. But we need to help them. We need to engage them in knowing that they won't use it in exactly the same way. And we're going to explore that a bit today. So yes, we've had difficulty persuading our colleagues that they need um, to help their students gain these transferable skills. 
And we've had many a debate in this very chamber um, with uh, academic colleagues saying, but I want them to do their research and get their doctorate. Um, I don't want them distracted. You've heard all those stories, haven't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we, um, we've been developing <coughs> and presenting courses. Um, I ran a graduate school up until a few years ago and had all of these courses on transferable skills. Uh, and we've written articles about it. But I think what we need to do is actually engage with the people in our own neck of the woods and help them to reflect on what this means. Also, I think we've seen this big change in the last sort of ten years or so, where uh, you know there are courses galore. There are lots and lots of courses that are being put on to you know, as you know, we put them on ourselves, project management, time management, all of those kind of things. And we have seen a shift from so where there was a lot of resistance initially, and particularly from um, supervisors who didn't see the point as Pam said. If there's less of that resistance amongst the PhD supervisors now, although there's more of it still, the, you know, the, with amongst the post um, postdoctoral um, line managers and PIs. So um, there has this acceptance, the gradual acceptance of the concept of transferable skills. I think has grown over the last couple of years. Yeah, it has been 10 years. Yeah, it's <laughs> taken a while. It does feel a bit ambitious <coughs> trying to push this bubble. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, we, we obviously have got this problem, and all of us are providing skills training courses and encouraging engagement. But at the same time, and, and as a supervisor, of course, I wear two hats, so I know that I'm also uh, trying to get my students to complete on time. And there's a huge amount of pressure now for timely completion. We can't have that lovely, let's spend a good few years doing our doctorate anymore. It really is something that needs to be um, done within four years, really. Um, we are still struggling to identify what employers mean by the skills that they require, because they do change um, depending on the, the sector uh, of industry or commerce. And they do, they're not necessarily well articulated. And then, of course, there are all these other initiatives that we've all got to make impact. We've got to engage with the public and persuade them. All of those are skills that the students have to learn, but academic staff have to learn them at the same time because we haven't done that before. Nobody asked me in the last 35 years what impact you were, I was making. I assumed that I was, and I hoped that I was making a difference, but we didn't have to write an impact statement. So um, all of these things are new, or um, fortunately for me, um, I was interested in um, uh, public understanding of science, as it was called, in the olden days, so I was involved with that, but um, for a lot of people it's very new. And uh, we also have what's now called the professionalization of the doctorate. Um, uh, lots of, uh, we have lots of doctorates now that are very specific to particular professions, and they, of course, want to prepare people um, at, with doctoral level intellectual skills but within their own professional area. And that's melding different things together. Um, and uh, because I've uh, spread my wings quite a bit around the place, um, I have been involved with quite a lot of different kinds of disciplines. And so I'm very familiar with uh, education, pharmacy, engineering, and medics. And they do have professional skills training within their um, ordinary degrees 
and their, well, their honours degrees, and their um, doctoral training. So they are, they're all used to that, but there are a whole mass of other disciplines that are not professionally focused, where their the professional skills are not considered. So, uh, for instance, teaching, uh, if people are on an education course, they have to have practice in schools or at whichever level they're going to teach. So professional practice is part and parcel of their training. Pharmacists have to have a whole year. Um, now it's becoming embedded in their honours degree, but previously it was post-undergraduate uh, degree before they uh, were allowed to uh, take their professional exam. Lawyers have to do that too. They have to have a time in practice. So they have a bridge but the rest of our disciplinary courses don't have that bridge. So um, that's another thing that, where we could be learning from each other within the academy from different uh, experiences. So those kind of particular kind of professional areas, well, there, was kind of, there was a need for those transferable skills, but the Roberts agenda was asking us or to train just generally all PhDs, all um, doctoral researchers, in transferable skills. And um, but we weren't really very clear, to be honest, what transferable skills were. I think we weren't given a definition to work with. It was just assumed that we knew what they were, and they would just move from one setting to another quite easily. So we've we've trying to think what are transferable skills. At a general level, it is about transferring one skill set into another setting. And probably, we would say, a novel setting. And that's the difference from moving from, if you're in teaching and engineering, you back into teaching and engineering. Whereas we were generally trying to equip um, doctoral researchers to move into any kind of employment um, area. But that um, requires, sets quite a few challenges, and um, mostly this brings out some of the assumptions about um, transferable skills, is that, it, that you can move quite simply from one area to, uh, to another. But experience in the corporate sector, for example, where there's been over 30 years of work in this, um, says that workplace transfer, when you, talk, you have your training session and then you transfer it back into the workplace, actually isn't as smooth as people assume. And that in, um, and numbers vary from, one extreme is nothing at all, but um, the immediate transfer effect, it could be about 40%. So 40% of the training course might then be used in, back in the workplace. And the longer you leave it, so you know, come down to about 15% in you know, a year's time or 25% in six months' time. So that raises a question for me as a developer, us as developers, you know, what are we doing and is it having the impact that we were being asked to, to deliver? Um, in that sense. So one of the things that has come up is a, a distinction between um, Fastwork and Hollyoak initially is about near and far transfer. And I think it's just particular resonance with us working with the doctoral researchers. But they drew a distinction between near and far transfer, whereby skills in near transfer are applied immediately and in similar ways and to similar contexts. Whereas in far transfer, the situations might be very distant in time and context. Right, and context. And that's quite important because all the things that probably we've trained our researchers in were initially focused on things that were required for the thesis. 
So project management, time management, good presentation skills, good communication skills. And, um, and, and additional research um, suggests that where you can immediately apply skills that you've been trained in, that's likely to be more successful. So and one of the um, original papers in there from Goldwyn and Ford identifies that as you know, the, the learning environment, the environment you go back to, and then your motivation as the learner to learn. So this is a, you know, it's crossed over with a lot of learning transfer as well. So, Luckily for us as developers, we've put on a lot of things that are actually quite useful for the thesis. But the robber's agenda didn't really ask us to do that. It asked us to train people for, to, for transferable skills in the future, which is the far transfer um, scenario. So we think that we're working with a multiple transfer model. So that we're actually delivering near transfer skills, but with far transfer expectations. And um, that is, um, creates other uh, problems for me. And some of those skills then we need to ask, which is a question that Pam said about what do employers want. You know, if you talk to employers, they want the kinds of things around um, juggling tasks, um, being able to work with a, a team of people, being able to you know, work in an international environment. We don't actually run, well I don't anyway, but those kinds of training courses. And I don't think I can run a training course on how to juggle tasks. Anyway, um, so the challenge for us all is how do we meet that far transfer context with our near transfer activity? Um, I don't think it's a bad thing that we're trying to do what we do because those, those skills are needed for, to make better theses, better doctorates, you know, and kind of help the students in situ. But the assumption that actually it's quite, we can, we can move from one context to another is further complicated by um, research into the experience of that, those other contexts. And somebody, and there's not an awful lot of work in this area, although Fumi has, has done some work, yes, and we'll tell us a little bit about that in a moment. But um, somebody who's looked at, um, at this, Michael LaRoe, for example, and he looked particularly at engineers and nursing and uh, accounting. So these are the PhDs and the, or the, the students that Pan referred to in their professional practice. And then he followed them into the working environment. And what he found was actually they found it quite difficult to transfer, even though they've been trained for those kinds of professions. And one of the barriers is this idea of tacit knowledge. So that when you find out how to do things in one context, it's not so easy then to then move smoothly into another context where people do things, but they don't tell you how they do things. They've got even further assumptions. So if that's difficult for those kinds of areas where we are seemingly training people to move into the profession, how difficult is it for those where we're moving them into completely unknown professions or areas that we don't know about, even the students that we're training for we don't know about either. So we're kind of... I'm physics grad PhD students who are going into work in the city are going to find it quite difficult to transfer uh, the skills that we are, we're training them in the universities. Or a humanities student who goes to work in an industrial business uh, as, ma as a manager is going to find things quite different. I noticed on your scribbles that you've got a car van ship. Yeah. Uh, so just uh, steal your metaphor and say, imagine that you, you learn how to drive a car. Uh, one of the things that I really hate, I have to, it, it resonates with me because 
I will not drive a hired car. I like to know my car. I like to know how big it is and what it will go through. Otherwise, I drive at 35 miles an hour instead of my usual 95. <coughs> uh, and so the thought of driving, driving a big van, which Jude is going to do, she's going to move, move <laughs> furniture from one house to another. She's going to drive a big van. Well, I, I'm just gobsmacked with amazement that she's prepared to do that. But what if we were asked to drive a ship? And that's the equivalent of what we're asking of our students. Yeah. So I think that's weird, is that? Not just changing the vehicle, but changing the place, the, the medium in which they're Yeah, yeah. And there may be similarities with that ship driving, but we don't know what they are. So, one of the questions that concerns us, I think, is what would make life easier for our you know, postgraduate researchers? Or what would ensure that we're not really wasting our time and effort and money having put on all this training? And you know, we're not spending as much in higher education as they are in the corporate sector, but it is a substantial investment, so we want to make sure that it's having an impact. So we don't think that it's about the simple repeated use of skills, but rather you need to transform that skill um, to the requirements of different contexts. And we need to create opportunities as best we can for our PGRs to um, have that experience. And what we're sort of suggesting then is in our view that you need to translate what you're doing, what you've been trained in, into practice, which means to being able to test it out still in a novel environment, being able to test it out and translate it into a, into a new setting and one that then we can reflect back on. So it's about translating it from one register of institutional environment to that of, a, of others. And Pam's got some examples of what you mean by that. Well, the cutlery one is just to remind me, I have a, an American daughter-in-law and uh, they lived in America for quite a while and then they moved to Europe, back to Europe. Um, and uh, my son had to teach his wife um, how to use cutlery because um, he, she was embarrassed every time that we went over there that we would use our bits. And he knew that when she came over here, we'd be taken out to nice places where there would be more than one set of stuff. So, um, so even though we ostensibly speak the same language um, and uh, Western cultures and so on. Uh, I, it did occur to me yesterday, I wonder if um, President Z uh, or she, however you pronounce that, that XI, um, whether he had special training on the cutlery he would be faced with um, at the um, Queen's Banquet yeah, at Buckingham Palace because um, it's a very different way and if it's something that you've learned really well to use one hand or the other, it's quite difficult to change. So something as simple as cutlery can be, how you use cutlery can be important. But also other things like modes of address. And we do have this rather strange uh, way of speaking to each other in the academy, which is not common in other working places. So we, we all do this jolly introducing new doctoral students um, together we say, oh, call me Pam, and then there are some people who find that really difficult, so um, we have to say, well, oh, okay, call me Prof Pam or Dr Pam, whatever, um, because that make, it's so uncomfortable for them to use first names. But we don't actually mean that they're going to be our best friends, just because they're allowed to call us by our first name. 
Um, um, but people can make that assumption that, you know, you've asked me to call you Pam, so you're my friend. So I can go across the campus and go, hi, I'm Pam, like that, and if you're acceptable. So we, we have a very strange culture in the university, but everybody has a very strange culture. So if you go into business, you do not go up to the chief exec and say, uh, I'm just laughing to myself because you've got a new chief exec. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who says, uh, they call me Sir Christopher. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I, I will choose the people who will get to call me Chris. Um, well, you wouldn't even get that in some industries, you know. It will be, you know, Lord Sugar or whatever, um, for those of you who watch the thing. You have to use the right forms of address. The way you uh, open and close emails is different in different cultural environments, different work environments. How do you learn those things? Um, we did have a little bit about that in that we one, did. about the learning these etiquettes. Um, or things in different places is really important mm -hmm. because it's it's bad enough to be going into a new environment where you are supposed to be demonstrating some particular professional skills, whatever they are, engineering, or, um, dance, or whatever it happens to be. But if you don't even know the etiquette of the place, it's even more embarrassing. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which we use language, that we communicate with people and so on, um, that we need to help people to recognize and find out about how things are done around here. You all know when you, you must presumably have been in some situation where you've come across people who don't know how things are done around here. Um, and so it, how awkward it is for them. So it's not just awkward, but they will have to learn a lot. So we are shifting the emphasis. Yeah, so from, yeah, so all of those things from hands work all part of that tacit knowledge kind of area. And we think that actually we need to shift from learning the skill, which is what all those courses were doing to some extent, to kind of take a step back and, and change the question slightly and focus on preparation for you know, using those skills. And so how can we help? PGRs translate or transfer those skills appropriately rather than just learning that skill. It's how can we get them to do that? And we think it's a combination of self-awareness and the opportunity to practice in a novel setting that brings that skill along, and it's that self-awareness thing. And in universities, there have been lots of traditional opportunities around teaching, editing journals, publishing, and going to conferences. Um, and there's a paper by Nigel Hopwood, so to write that down because we keep it, I keep getting it wrong. Um, and um, uh, looked at some of these areas, teaching, mentoring, and um, journal editing. And what's been interesting, although there are things that paper that we kind of disagree with, but he's kind of drawing out the students have all kind of reflected on the other skill sets they got out of this kind of activity. So they learned to juggle tasks. Um, and, and they've learned to reflect and they've learned different strategies and of course they are exactly the kinds of things that employers want and the question is how can we kind of maximise that? So and how do they sell that to employers when they're looking for the Do they know that they've acquired this skill of juggling several different things at the same time? Yeah. Um, in order to do, do employers recognise it when they see it? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, and that, that's a really good point because with team working, employers always say they want team working, but actually when you dig down into it, they don't want team working. They want people who are 
so we're able to consider others. They want a whole package of things like juggling and, and not being selfish and putting the team first. And, and it's a, there's a lot more behind a lot of these headline things, I think. But there are some emerging areas which we find quite useful as well. Yes, and uh, uh, I think a lot of you are probably familiar with public engagement that students are engaged with now. Uh, there's some amazing things where they do stand-up comedy on their PhD, and I didn't realise that actually there was anything funny about theoretical physics, but indeed there is. Um, and um, they, you know, there's all sorts of things they can do um, to uh, work with children, uh, go to the WRI, do all sorts of things like that where they can work with people who are not normally the people that they would be selling their research to. Uh, lots of enterprise activities uh, that are voluntary by and large. Most of them are voluntary uh, in the universities that I'm involved with. There are links with industry and uh, uh, SETNET, which is um, a consortium of nine, uh, moving up to 11 uh, universities in the southeast. Uh, we have an employer advisory board, and employers come along and work with our students, talk to our students, students go to them. Um, and they put quite a lot of input into the training. Um, those are links that um, were unthought of 10 years ago, I think. Um, we have internships and secondments and visits and so on that helps us, the students see what it's like in those places and get to know different environments. Um, and we have employers come along and, and work with our students too, running workshops. We've had quite a few uh, successes with things like uh, the employers provide a problem that they are actually really juggling, solve, trying to solve in their own um, situation and haven't yet got a solution. So it's a real problem. And we have teams of students working on those problems. And of course, the winner not only gets that uh, solution put into practice, but we usually give them a book token or something exciting. As well. So they enjoy doing those kinds of things, but actually working on real-world problems instead of the nice, tidy, um, sanitized versions that appear in doctoral theses. Uh, the messy, the messy problems of real life in industry. So, so there are things going on, um, but there there are pockets of things. They're not widespread, and we do need to learn from each other and maybe share some good practice. And I think it's that sharing of good practice that we're hoping to hear from And So thank you. That was just a kind of a, a, a bit of a some of the issues that we're looking at in terms of um, PGRs, and uh, I think it changes our our role and also their expectations as well. I think about what we can do. Would you like this?